you know, proper and sustainable trail planning, design, construction, and routine maintenance of your trail resources. We feel, and many of us feel, even in the natural resource field, feel that that is our best way to protect our cultural and natural resources for future generations. Welcome to Trail Effect episode 13. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Today we welcome Tony Boone. Tony has been designing and building trails since the 1980s. When it comes to trail knowledge, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody with more experience than Tony. Tony is currently the Chief Operations Officer at Timberline Trailcraft based out of Colorado. Tony is also on the Professional Trail Builders Board of Directors and the Committee Chair for Higher Education at the PTBA. This interview is full of great content regarding trails, trail use, and trail education. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for truck bicycle company and sells us cycles. Smith also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenek of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is brought to you by Evolution Trail Services and is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Well, we'll kick this thing off. Here we are with Tony Boone of Timberline Trailcraft and many other things within the trail building industry. We're going we're gonna to talk to Tony about many different things, especially uh, how the trail industry has kind of evolved and what he's done within the trail industry. But uh, thank you very much for coming on today, Tony. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. So let's dig into your backstory, maybe how you got into trail building in general. I know I've talked to a handful of people that have been in the industry and they've described you as one of the godfathers of trail building and have been in, I guess, modern or mountain bike specific trail building now for longer than most. And so maybe you could dig into how you, uh, how you really got into this crazy industry. That's, uh, that's very flattering, but it sounds really old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate to be in the mountain bike trail building and planning and design industry for about 35, 36 years now. And um, just feel super fortunate to kind of take a passion and run with it, so to speak. My dad always said, son, you'll never make a living in recreation. And I think my response back then was, I don't care. I'm going climbing or something like that. So from a true dirtbag at heart to a... uh, Somewhat of a decent businessman, I guess, over the decades. But yeah, it's been a it's been a hell of a ride. The first company, or the first time really building trails, was in mid to late eighties. Uh, from a mountain bike standpoint, I got my first mountain bike in nineteen eighty four. Of course, prior to that, like many guys in my generation, uh, we had the Schwinn Stingray. 
So we were always building dirt jumps or jumping galvanized trash cans or, or whatever as kids. I mean, it's so interesting to like think back, you know, to like your first bike you had and how, how significant, you know, that was in your life. And, you know, to think now of how significant each one of your bikes is, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lucky position to be in and it's been a great ride. So yeah, first uh, started building trails in Netherlands uh, when I moved there shortly after Boulder in 1987. Uh, I was working for Boulder County Parks and Open Space at that point in, uh, as a seasonal ranger at that point in time. Uh, and then it was about, oh, 93, I think it was, um, that I realized, wow, folks can actually build trails in like broad daylight and like get paid for it. And that was kind of an epiphany for me. I know my agency, Boulder County Parks and Open Space, was still in the acquisition phase. So the trails that they had on their properties were pretty much the roads that were on there when they bought the old ranch or the old mining place or whatever. I mean, they were essentially roads that they that we called as trails. And, and I knew that that acquisition phase was going to go on a while. And I went down and saw a machine down in Jefferson County Open Space. It was a, called a Suico 450. Kim Frederick, one of my mentors uh, who used to work there, kind of showed me it. And, and, and like the lights went off right at that point. And I thought, damn, you know, we need this at Boulder County Parks and Open Space. Well, needless to say, I was probably 10 or 15 years early for that before they got into their development phase. But it was probably right on time from, from a personal development standpoint because I realized that you know, not with just Boulder County, but many government agencies, as you stay with them over the decades, they tend to breed some status quo work ethics. Uh, and I was always on the line of, you know, if you're not doing your job and laying your job on the line at least a couple times a year, you're really probably not pushing the envelope. You are status quo. So that with the combination of a fax uh, that came in so maybe like late 1993, I guess, about a used Suico 450 dozer for $36,000. Really, the lights just started going off. I was like, I've got to do this. I've got to get out there. Uh, at that point in time in the industry, there was uh, Western Trail Builders Association, which is now our Professional Trail Builders Association. Uh, and it was about 20 different companies uh, that basically worked in Idaho, Northwest, Northern California, primarily just on Forest Service contracts. It was you know, kind of the evolution, the beginning of the evolution of the private trail construction industry. Uh, and of course, in the last, you know, three or four decades, we've seen most government agencies have lost their trail crews. And of course, to replace that, we've seen the growth of the professional trail building industry, not just within North America, but pretty much around the world. PTBA has members from half a dozen countries, I think, at this point. Anyway, so in 94, I made that leap from the county to a private company. The first company was Arrowhead Trails, Arrowhead Trails Inc. Uh, and we lived in Nederland, Colorado. My ex actually still owns that. She's outside of Salida. They're still building trails, awesome trails. Uh, and we started that company and basically started marketing in Texas. I mean, sorry, not Texas, in Colorado. And we were the only dot on the map. Uh, in the PTBA or WTBA as it was back then, a list of trail builders. That was even really before WTBA even had a website. 
So it was pretty much everything was hand published. It was funny because my first meeting I went to back in 95 when I was voted into the organization, they always asked the new members, what are you going to do for Western Trail Builders Association? And of course, you know, I was a go-getter back then. So guess what I said? Yep. I said, I'm going to get trail building as a heading in every single yellow pages. <laughs> Before I got that, <laughs> the internet came out. And what used to take us months to market to regions, <laughs> all of a sudden within 10, 15 years, begin to take just, you know, three or four hours to get as much marketing done because of the internet. Uh, but I thought that was brilliant back then. And, and today I think about it, it makes me think, wow, the whole, you know, evolution of the industry, the evolution of the outdoor rec industry has been mind blowing. And, uh, Technology has obviously sped, sped that up a lot lately. Uh, in let's see, I had Arrowhead Trails until when was that? 2007, and then I started Anasazi Trails, uh, based out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. Our first project there, one of our first one was to do a 250 mile feasibility study for the Rio Grande Trail to take it from Albuquerque, ABQ, to Sunland Park, which is essentially on the Mexican border. Uh, and that kind of kicked off a great thing there. We were fairly successful in that. And then it just, things changed, focused more back in Colorado. Uh, ended up selling out that company, selling out my Arrowhead Trails uh, shares. I uh, just needed a break from all the employees and all the travel that was, you know, seemed to be driving everywhere. Uh, and in 2010, I started my own sole adventure with Tony Boone Trails. Uh, and I just started subcontracting for Emma. Chris Bernhardt was running their uh, program, especially focused on overseas stuff. And there, within about a two or three year period, we did projects in uh, four or five places in Australia, a couple places in Hong Kong, a couple places in China, uh, some Philippine projects. Um, and it was just an incredible adventure. That had to come to an end uh, when I had two more kiddos and traveling overseas, which just kind of became difficult. Uh, and about 2013, 2014, came back here, started growing my business in Colorado again with Tony Boone Trails with construction and not just consulting. And, you know, with the whole demand of trails and being in the industry a long time, I was blessed super quick with just more projects than I could handle. Uh, and I started uh, hiring some interns and some subcontractors and developed a relationship with uh, a gentleman named Tim Emick, who is the owner and founder of Timberline Landscaping in Colorado Springs, company of about 200 employees, a uh, large, super successful company for 35 years. Uh, and his son, Colton, was one of my interns. Uh, so we worked together two or three years. And begin talking and chatting when we'd spend time together and realize that, you know, for me to take full advantage of my efforts and decades in the industry that I really would be better if I didn't have to let so many bids just go across the table and not do anything, but had the potential of having a larger company essentially to take care of that. So to make a long story short... Uh, we did a deal, five-year contract, non-compete. I uh, became a salaried employee, and I'm now the COO of Timberline Trailcraft. And we opened in uh, March of 2019. We're based in our uh, headquarters over in northeast section of Colorado Springs. 
that's become fairly successful as well with the explosion of the industry and especially with the whole COVID uh, and the whole increase, you know, that we're seeing in trail use around the world. People are saying everything from 150 to 300% increases in trail use, uh, you know, depending on where you're at. Uh, and that, of course, has created some challenges for land use managers. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot more trail projects and trail contracts going out to bid. And I think one of the other things I think that really helped with that evolution was back in 2017 when they started doing the GDP uh, and, and estimating GDP for the outdoor recreation industry. Uh, and I think many of us were surprised, including many of those people in the government and some of these larger industries, that the outdoor recreation industry is actually growing faster than at this current point in time. And in 2017, they said it was, oh, what was it back then? 700 or 600 million and then no or was it eight anyway the the year after that or whatever i think it was up to almost 900 trillion dollars uh, i'm sorry 900 billion dollars now a year or two later you know it's still hovering in that they say which is which is amazing to think that our industry is close to a trillion dollar industry i mean here in colorado you know a half million jobs in our state rely on the outdoor recreation industry. So as you can imagine, our whole economy is churned by that as, as the motor, the tourism. Folks that come here to hunt, to fish, to raft, to bike, to hike, to do 14ers, you know, to watch birds, to, to do whatever. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing, powerful industry. It's a whole lot less cyclical uh, than the oil and gas industry or some of the other, uh, you know, extractive industries. So anyway, here we are today. Uh, Timberline Trailcraft is pretty much booked uh, at least a couple of their crews until 2022. Uh, so we're looking for a bit more work this next year that would flesh out our third and fourth crews. Uh, Tony Moon Trails is kind of taking the back seat. Uh, we're still on some master plans. We're helping uh, do some master planning and trail design for the new Fisher Peak State Park. The 19,200 acre state park outside of Trinidad, Colorado, with the iconic Fisher Peak sitting at 9,633 feet above sea level, which is cool because it's the highest peak east of I-25. Uh, so this massive ranch that's been in private ownership for years is now being planned uh, as Colorado's 42nd state park, with a real emphasis on how do we best balance recreation and the biological components, the natural resources of the area? So that's, that's kind of really cool. I feel super fortunate to be involved with that as I go kind of into the latter part of my career. Uh, so anyway, that's, uh, that's a nutshell. As far as from a PTBA standpoint, we've been a member of that uh, since 95. We have 130 members. I'm also on the executive board and the chairman for the education committee, which we have a education and certification committee. Willie Bittner uh, from Great Lakes Trail Building up in the Northeast uh, is heading up the certification, certification portion of it, of which PTBA will begin certifying things. Uh, and I know we were talking about Mike Ryder before, and Mike's involved with it because he's had such a success uh, at his certification program. But where we're hoping is to just just have a lot more folks that can make this available, not only from a national level and a North American level, but ultimately sharing it with all our partners around the world uh, so that we can have more skilled folks being doing trail building, trail design, and planning. 
uh, super exciting. On my component of it, focus more on education, higher education, we will be offering four classes this April and May that were postponed from last fall uh, that are essentially ultimately leading to uh, associates in applied technology. Uh, and our four classes that come out in April and May, each one of these are one week long classes. These are the first four of eight classes that will lead to the level one certificate. We'll have an additional eight classes for a level two certificate. Uh, and then the level three certificate will have approximately eight classes as well. Upon completion of the level uh, of the three different levels, we desire to be able to offer this associates in applied technology in trail management and construction. Uh, the classes that we're going to introduce this spring, which are the ones, same ones as last fall that we had to postpone for COVID, are Introduction to Natural Surface Trails and Recreation Management, Introduction to Trail Maintenance, Planning Sustainable Trails 1, and Designing Sustainable Trails 1. Uh, we'll get a few more construction classes hopefully out here in the fall. Right now, we're crossing our fingers that COVID doesn't really mess with us, even though as we are all finding out, the whole face of education is somewhat changing right before our eyes. Uh, I don't know if you got kids, Josh, but... Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> how's your remote learning going there? <laughs> so, yeah, it's uh, added some new work duties to our daily tasks, those of us that work at home. Uh, so, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell uh, in the background. I mean, if you summarize it all, I've had a chance to work in... I think nine different countries, 15 states, and I'm up around close to 700 miles of trails designed and built um, and have had the opportunity to just work with some fantastic crews, really thousands of students around the world that, you know, right now really are kind of continuing to pursue their careers. And I don't know, I just feel super lucky to, number one, be in the whole outdoor recreation industry, uh, and number two, be in that niche subset of trail construction and, and design so super awesome yeah it's interesting that you bring up willie bittner because he lives about three miles from me oh no shit <laughs> that's great and him and i actually did mike Ryder's class together oh nice probably decades ago <laughs> well no i think he so he was already he already owned great lakes trail builders he had already lived on the east coast um and then he had came back to lacrosse to do he was working for WizCore at the time and and they hopped into Mike's class, I think, just to get in it. He obviously was an experienced trail builder at that time. Anyhow, but that would have been in two thousand and eleven or twelve. Right. Nice. You know, but he had already been on the East Coast for quite a while and then came back to our region, you know, so he had he had quite a bit of experience. Yeah, I guess technically he's not in the northeast now. He's in the Yeah. Yeah, he's in the cross. Yeah. What do you call that? Upper Midwest or what? Yeah, we're Upper Midwest. Yeah. For sure. You probably know Adam and Mika Harji, right? I actually do. I know of them, but I don't know. I've never personally met them. Oh, right. On. Yeah. They're, they work a lot out of there. I'm not exactly sure where they're out of, but I know just kind of up there in your neck of the woods. Their company's called Dirt Candy Designs. Yeah. And they've done a lot of work up in Northern Wisconsin. And I think they've partnered with uh, Rock Solid on some stuff, stuff along uh, Lake Superior and that Northeast part of Minnesota, right on the shores of Lake Superior. So they've, I've seen their work is, is pretty amazing. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, talented, great folks too. Yeah. So we're going to get into some of that educational stuff in a, in a little bit, but I want to, I want to go into a quote that you're, uh, 
you've been famous for saying, which came from a mentor, mentor of yours named Jim Angel, and that is that people don't need trails, the land does. Do you want to dig into what that actually means for the general public out here to yeah. what trails mean to the land? That's super solid, isn't it? It and is. And I think it means a lot, especially to those of us within the trail industry. And, you know, to summarize it in a bit more detail, um, you know, proper and sustainable trail planning, design, construction, and routine maintenance of your trail resources, we feel, and many of us feel, even in the natural resource field, feel that that is our best way to protect our cultural and natural resources for future generations. Um, and not only that, but it's probably our best way to encourage our development of these new stewards that will help protect our natural and cultural resources for future generations. So it kind of goes hand in hand with that. I mean, you think about it, I know you've got places that you've been before where the trails, whether you're looking at them on the side of a hill or whether you're looking at them on a map, it looks like a bowl of spaghetti. Uh, and you know, people inherently want to go to the highest point of a certain property or they want to go down and they want to see the water feature or they want to see the biggest, you know, hardwood tree or the biggest evergreen tree or the really cool boulder with lichen on it. I mean, these, these things are just inherently provoking our curiosity. So in essence, you know, trail planners, you know, are tasked with essentially kind of herding cats uh, and trying to keep these, users which are inherently curious uh, and satisfy their desires to go to these points these positive control points that we call them in the industry when we're doing design and planning um, and satisfied enough to where they don't wander create road trails or just create social trails you know the difference between social trails and road trails in my opinion being you know road trails are intentionally created and 99.9% .9 of the time that people know that are digging them, since they're digging them at dark <laughs> or away from the public, know that they're probably not following due process. Mm -hmm. Then you've got social trails, which are a little less intentional. However, they have the same effect. And, you know, they can be from the person going out from the trailhead wanting to go to the really cool trail on the knoll. And everybody all of a sudden walks up that doggone knoll on the fall line and there's your social trail. Nobody really intended to do that, but, you know, over 20 passes, 50 passes, you know, the grass gets beat down. And then before you know it, it's dirt two feet wide. Before you know it, it's dirt four feet wide. So goes the story of the evolution of social trails. So our goal is to kind of minimize road trails and social trails by connecting all those positive control points and avoiding those control points, which may be considered positive by a recreational standpoint or mentality, uh, but may not be ideal from a biological or cultural resource management standpoint. You know, obviously that meadow is really cool. You want to go down in there. Uh, but in March and April, the elk cab in there. So probably could have an impact, you know, things like that. So yeah, people don't need trails. The land does. And, you know, it's interesting. I get, I get attached to that because I've shared it with so many people. Uh, but that was from my mentor, Jim Angel, who basically I started taking classes from him in El Dorado Canyon State Park uh, in 1993. So, Yeah, that's, that's an awesome story. And it really lays it out there. And what, what we're trying to do and, you know, where, where we live, there is a lot of 
social and rogue trails. And I think, you know, we've been doing a pretty good job to restore those areas, but it's still, it still pops up and, and we do our best to educate the public on why we're doing things the way we're doing when it comes to laying out new trails and whatnot. So we talked a little bit. It's difficult, difficult when you want to close somebody's favorite section of trail, you know, every section of trail can potentially be somebody's favorite section of trail, regardless that it's changing over time after every rainstorm, regardless, irregardless the fact that it's not even close to sustainable, but that's still Joe's favorite section. And if you change it and make it sustainable, all of a sudden, you know, you're the, you're the bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the trails that we have here on the cross that Willie Bittner actually helped design and build back in 2012 and 13. It, it was, it's about a two and a half mile trail and it replaced a trail that was about three quarters of a mile long. And it started and ended at the exact same point, right? And the first complaints we got, especially as mountain bikers, is that from the hikers is that this trail's way too long. Right? <laughs> you know, but we're we're trying to explain to them that, you know, this is the really the the best way of doing it from a stand- sustainability standpoint because you're getting under, you know, you're getting logical grades. Mm-hmm. You know, but they just really wanted to do exactly what you said. They wanted to get to that viewpoint of that vista, like ASAP. Yeah, the you know the whole trail industry in the fifties and sixties, you know, that was kind of you know pushed by Forest Service and in-house crews and national park. You know, it was very much destination based because of the land parcels and how and and how magnificent they are. You know, so then you add your average county park, which is totally awesome beauty and nature. Uh, on a local level, but it, you know, probably doesn't compare to, you know, Saguaro or Yosemite or something that in its uniqueness. Uh, and all of a sudden we don't really have so many destination trails, uh, but we have these more experience based trails that meander and, and don't necessarily have to rush to get to the highest point in the quickest amount of time. However, you still have those users that are in that mindset of, you know, I do want to get to that highest point, you know, even though it's only 40 feet higher than the surrounding train. <laughs> I got to do it quick, <laughs> you know? Yeah. On that note, before we, I'm going to go into the weeds a little bit. When I was doing a little bit of research on you, Timberline Trails um, recently rehabbed, I believe it's called the Manitou Incline. Yes. Were you involved with that at all? Uh, that, no, that, was, that was actually, oh, sorry about that. That's all right. Um, that was done by Timberline Landscaping. When before we started Timberline Trailcraft, uh, some of the employees that are in Timberline Trailcraft, including Colton, uh, he was on that project. That was a $3.6 million project. Uh, I think there was 280 helicopter flights. Uh, I can't remember the ungodly amount of, of timbers uh, and aggregate and stone and erosion control netting and six-inch pipe and concrete. Uh, but yeah, it's one of those projects where part of me is like, whew, I'm kind of glad I wasn't involved on that because just the technical challenge and the physical challenge of it. I mean, are you familiar with the Manitou Incline? Only familiar when I was doing a little bit of research and I watched the video that was on, that's on the Timberline website and that in itself, when you talk about physical challenges, that thing, that, that trail, if you want to call it a trail, seems to be like the number one thing for a lot of the residents around there and how, what it means to them. 
Yeah. And even like a global draw with people coming to it, you know, I mean, 2,800 yeah. steps in about a mile, you know, <laughs> going thousand feet average, of it? like I think the steepest grade is 68%, I think. Uh, and the way, the way that it's built is, is amazing. It's really one of the reasons I decided to partner with Tim and, and, and Timberline is, you know, all those timbers, uh, which are precariously placed on the side of that hill over an old water conduit, are now strung together with like five eighths inch braided aluminum aircraft cable. Oh, wow. So even if the dirt's gone underneath the step, which some places, you know, it, it, you know, it's decomposed granite. So it's just like ball bearings, you know, it's the steps are just hanging, but they're still essentially hung by that, that massive braided cable. Uh, and then, you know, those are anchored every hundred or 200 feet with, you know, these six inch metal pipe that are concreted in the ground, like five or six feet. And I just, you know, it's one thing to do that in a neighborhood where you can pull up next to it. It's another thing to do that, you know, half mile up the hillside on, you know, super steep side slopes with, you know, 20 people. So yeah, yeah. very impressive project. I would encourage listeners that are not familiar with that project, uh, regardless of where they live, is just to search up the Manitou Incline. Uh, and get an idea of that project. I think there's also some videos on our Timberline Trailcraft website as well. Yeah, and to be clear, because we were talking about like not doing that five minutes ago. Yeah, that, that Timberline incline was a scar there from from a previous rail car, so that wasn't something that was that was just put in place for the trail purposes. It was actually repurposed for human use after a rail car that was there for decades. Yeah, yeah, not a whole country. It actually had some water line under it as well. So as you were going up this place 10 years ago, which, you know, people were not staying off of it, even with the no trespassing signs, you'd have rebar sticking up out of the timber steps. You'd have areas where this rusty metal pipe had two or three foot holes in it that you could step into and essentially gash your leg open. But yeah, that that is a major tourist attraction for that town of Manitou Springs. And so, yeah, it really kind of leads into kind of the evolution of directional trails and user optimized trails, which I think is something that yeah, we were we'll into. go into that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but that we got into the weeds a little bit on that, but that's pretty amazing. Um, let's talk about how you uh, did you spearhead the role with um, the educational components of the PTBA or is that something you, you came into later on? Cause I want to dig into the, I want to go into the weeds a little bit on the educational side of things. Cause I think obviously it's it, that side of the industry is pretty new and it's, it's pretty important. It's something I know when I was in college, I wish I had the opportunity to take trail building courses. It would have been amazing, but let's dig into that because that's, it's such a vital role for this industry as it is a, a pretty young, but very important industry as you've alluded to. So can you talk a little bit about the educational side of things? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, my background is I have actually a master's in education. So I'm an educator at heart. Um, I love that component of my job and teaching folks how to build trails and, you know, the whole the whole aspect of sharing my passion of the dirt, digging in the dirt with others is something that I've done for, you know, for forever and I plan to do it forever. But But that kind of background of being in education and being able to like 
help somebody go from one level to the other, whether it be you're teaching a rock climbing class and they're going from a 5'8 to a 5'10 or whether you're teaching trail builder or whatever, and to be able to see that enjoyment in their facial expressions and their eyes of that progression of their accomplishment. I just, I like that shit. Uh, you know, it's kind of another one of the reasons I like building and designing trails is, you know, it, it, it changes people's lives potentially, you know, it gives them that break and it makes you feel like you're doing something like, like a really, like a, like a awesome, like service to the public kind of a feeling to, to the community. I don't, I got lost on that. Where were we? Education. <laughs> Education. Um, the yeah. reason that uh, the reason that I started that and have been doing education in the past is that the trail building industry is exploding. We don't have enough skilled laborers coming into it, and we need more skilled laborers to come into. I mean, you cannot obviously you can hire fresh people and train them every year, but it'd be so awesome to hire somebody that came in that already knew how to build trails and was a crew leader. Not only just a crew leader for hand built trails, but primarily for our industry machine built trails and that's kind of the gap between the youth corps and the and the volunteer groups is yeah they've got a lot of experience building trails by hand but then you put them on a machine and you know kind of have to they have to you know learn again uh so the other reason is just what you alluded to the other you know is man if we were kids coming out of high school or coming out of college and we knew that we could go into like a trail building program dude i would have done this way earlier uh so I want these kids, this future generation of young adults to know that they can go into trail building as a career. And most importantly, trail building is a legitimate career. Okay. It's got paid time off. It's got health benefits. You know, it's got all these things that go along with a real job. If you want to do it 12 months out of the year, you can do it 12 months out of the year. If you don't want to, tons of seasonal opportunities, but it's a legit job, just like plumber, just like electrician just like home builder or whatever. So that, that in itself. So this Trinidad State Junior College program came about from Trinidad State Junior College. It's always something I dreamed about, but I just didn't have the bandwidth or the capacity to do it uh, with, you know, having my regular job of being a trail builder. Uh, so Juan De La Roca, who's an advocate down in Trinidad where the new Fisher Peak State Park had gone to Trinidad State Junior College and chatted with the Dean of Instruction. Uh, his name's Keith Gibson. Uh, he's been at the school for about 33, 34 years. He also ran their gunsmithing program, which is globally famous. People come from all over the world there. The Army sends people there. Uh, I mean, it's like most people in Trinidad never even knew that, but pretty famous program. So he's the one that's basically, you know, assisted me and, and led me hand in hand to develop this curriculum. Level one's approved. We're offering those classes. I need to do my lesson plans for these first four. I haven't quite finished those this year. Uh, and then level two is in the approval process. Level three is in the outline phase. Uh, and then ultimately, like I say, that leads to that degree in trail management and construction. But this effort pretty much came from, from Juan and a grassroots effort within Trinidad, Colorado via Trinidad State Junior College. And now Keith has picked it up. And even though he's retired now, uh, within the last couple of months, he's still championing, championing, championing <laughs> this program uh, out of his good, you know, good nature and his passion for it. Uh, and so, yeah, we've been rolling with it. Uh, at this point, I'm the only adjunct professor, uh, but that is not going to be the case. 
one of the really awesome things about this program is that within about three months of us initiating and doing the planning, we got contacted by the Nature Conservancy, which is one of the partners that helped purchase Fisher Peak State Park along with CPW, that's Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and uh, Trust for Public Land. Uh, and they said they had somebody very interested in education uh, and being able to train people to do, you know, vocational jobs, et cetera, and that they wanted to give us an anonymous grant. Uh, and basically they did to the tune of $200,000. So we will, we purchased our first trailer that we'll store our tools in. We'll also have state-of-the-art little dozer, excavator, uh, and basically everything we need to offer these students to gain, you know, their skills in ultimately becoming trail designers, planners, and or builders. So pretty exciting. Uh, right now, the real crux is is getting people to fill the classes, uh, you know, during these times when people really don't want to travel, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's exciting stuff. Uh, and it's pretty much like, you know, I'm at, I'm at 50, almost 59 now. Uh, so, you know, I'm kind of going into a partial retirement here in the next three to five years. And this is one of the zones, uh, that I will continue to focus on as to helping become this, this educational program become sustainable, uh, and get enough instructors on board, you know, to where we can teach these 24 different classes effectively. Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. So as we know, we're going to we're going to pivot here a little bit but as we know trails are obviously huge for the tourism side of things but let's talk about trails from a community sense and what they really mean to communities and what you've seen just or your personal experience when it comes to the quality of life and what that can what trails can offer in communities to both keep people in communities and and get people to move into communities for uh, especially for talent attraction and retaining talent yeah well i mean you know you got to look at bentonville I mean, look at, you know, what what Gary Vernon has done with his original plan and concept of, correct me if I'm wrong, but we need some things here to attract people to live here to work for the Walmart Corporation. Yep. From my understanding and, and my memory from chatting with him, you know, years past, you know, his first thing wasn't to become the mountain bike capital of the world. What did they, what did they just trademark? That was it. Yeah, that was exactly it. That wasn't his first first concept. Uh, so you know, having that quality of life, uh, you know, here in Colorado, we have a comprehensive plan uh, that the state does about every five or ten years. I'm not sure, uh, and they do a survey to residents, and every year that they do this thing, um, it always comes back that 75, 80 percent of the folks in Colorado. One of the main reasons they live here, one of the main points of their quality of life is access to the outdoors and trail use. Uh, and we just haven't seen that change. Uh, it's, it's held steady. I would imagine it's very similar in many other states um, and probably growing in all states at this point, you know, doing to that whole new demographic. I mean, you know, all these folks that went to the mall that went out to do their recreational eating, that went to the movie theaters, that went and played putt-putt golf. What, what are they doing now? <laughs> they're hiking and biking. <laughs> they're hiking and biking. I mean, from the shortage of bikes 
Never seen going into a Walmart with not even a single cheap bike, much less the bike shops with no bikes. Uh, and then just seeing people on the trails. I mean, single track this, it was not the year of single track. I will say that single track is now braided track, uh, and tracks that are four and five feet wide because, you know, the new demographic, uh, is, uh, is definitely social oriented, I think, and family oriented. And when you hike in those larger groups, uh, you tend to widen those trails, you know? So yeah, it's been an interesting evolution for that. Yeah. So with that being said, one of the things that really caught my attention was a post that you made like a month or two ago about directional trails. And this is something that I've kind of touted for a long time. And this year, I think more than ever, it's really spread up to something that we need to focus on as an industry more where we can, where we can actually make it work. Let's hear your take on directional trails. And we know that directional trails may not be appropriate every single place, but let's, let's really get into that how directional trails work and what the purpose of directional trails are. Because some people don't really understand that. Yeah, directional trails can be an awesome tool to minimize your visitor conflicts, to maximize your specific user experience, um, uh, and, and basically kind of give the feeling to the user that there's not so many people on the trail. <laughs> you know, because theoretically, if you're all going in a loop, some people will pass others, but you probably won't pass as many people face to face. You shouldn't be uh, that you would on a bi-directional trail. So you should have a bit more of that feeling of it's not overcrowded. And hopefully that helps us deal with some of the, some of the use. But from a user optimized things, you know, one of the other things that uh, my mentor Jim told me was you've got to get inside the head of the user. Okay. Uh, and when and I did most of my training, it was in El Dorado Canyon State Park and Boulder Mountain Parks, a lot of climbing access trails. Okay. What is your typical climbing, rock climbing access trail look like? Straight into the rock? Straight, straight up that fall line, right? Yep. Not oh, yeah. a great, doesn't make a good mountain biking trail. Uh, not, not a great trail for most of your hikers. But for those that want to get to the climb as fast as possible, that's the ideal route is pretty much straight up that fall line. So, you know, you look at other user groups, you know, you look at uh, what we call the poop loop, you know, which is this term that we developed this last year in uh, Austin Bluffs open space, which is an open space area next to the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. It's only about 450, 500 acres. It's surrounded by a neighborhood and they've got some issues with social trails. Uh, and one of them is because the understanding or the saying that we have is, is the closest access to an open space trail is directly at your backyard. <laughs> so this place has 130 access points. Oh, wow. In a 400 and something acre park. And every one of those access points is fall line to the existing trail system. And what we found with that is, you know, they originally had long loops that you could get on and have a decent hiking experience, you know, an hour or two. However, these poop loops is kind of this reality that people come home from work, their kids got off from school, they're doing their homework, they got 30 minutes to walk the dog, and then they got to start cooking dinner. So they go out on the trail or on their social trail, they access the designated trail system. Whoops, 20 minutes is up. I got to head back. Boom. What do they do? 
A lot of times they'll turn around and walk back, but a lot of times they'll cut cross country and hit another trail. So all of a sudden, closer to these 130 access points, you have these little micro systems of, of little small loops, thus termed the poop loop. So, uh, you know, it is, it goes back to the Harding cats, but I feel like understanding directional trails and the benefits of these directional trails is that you can really adjust the desires of each of your individuals so that they can seek out something that there is their ideal trail, whether that be the double black diamond mountain bike one-way directional trail, or whether that be the out and back, you know, climbing trail to access the climb or the high point that the hikers and the runners do. Um, And you begin to, even in a system that can have many shared use trails within it, you begin to offer those more niche experiences so that those people can be satisfied in their desires and hopefully have a higher probability to behave maturely and environmentally sensitive when they're on the shared use trails, thus not shortcutting, thus not freaking other people out, going too fast, you know, that kind of thing. So that's one of the main benefits is I feel like you can enhance your user experience, minimize your visitor conflicts. Are there bad things about those? Yes. Directional trails are extremely hard to put and retrofit into an existing trail system where people's habits have been established for decades. Very difficult. Much easier to build a new trail in a system and call it one way or just build a whole new park with directionality built into it. Uh, but difficult to do that. So with that being said, and, and projects that you see coming online, do you have clients that maybe don't know about directional trails and do you try to steer them in that direction when it comes to an open space that may not have trails so you can start out with a clean slate? Yes. Yeah, and so at Fisher Peak State Park, we've talked about that, whereas the trail to the summit, you know, would likely be an out and back as direct a route as possible for pedestrians, even though some of it may allow a bike to a certain point until you have to scramble. We also have those other areas where we're like, man, this area goes down into the rocks. We could do a directional downhill trail for mountain bikes into here. Uh, And that would get them off of this one trail where the hikers are going to be coming up. And so you're trying to engineer to design those visitor experiences to help disperse that use and especially try to help separate the users when the terrain is kind of dictating what type of experience it is. Yeah. I hope there's a lot more information coming out on directional trails. I mean, I literally did a Google search uh, last year and there was like one article I found out from Central Oregon Trail Alliance. uh, And that's kind of why Timberline decided to do that, that little blog post on directional trails. I think I'm going to take it a little bit step further. I think I'm going to try to get an article published in American trails, see if EMBA will share it on their websites. um, And of course, PTBA and, and just start getting people more talking about that because I, I feel like the advantages of the directional trail systems need to be common knowledge amongst land managers as we move into these higher demand, you know, times for outdoor recreation. Oh, for sure. And this year definitely highlighted that that need, you know, when you as you alluded to here said earlier, you know, trail use is up 
150 to 300%. I've seen upwards of 500% in certain places. And I don't think any of us, that's one thing. I don't think any of us saw that coming. No, yeah. I didn't really either. Uh, but I guess the, the, you know, the foreshadowing was it was that you and I and others, when we were shut in, we really didn't notice any difference to our lifestyle. <laughs> I don't get yeah. to see a lot of people at work. When I'm seeing people, I can easily be six feet away from them. I'm outdoors. Yeah. I want to come home. I see my family, but I, I'm not like wandering around, you know, going to high sociable areas usually unless it was like an outdoor concert or something like that, you know, and it just, you know, I was like, and, and we'd go hiking anyway, which was encouraged. So it was like, wow, in a way I was like, man, this is a blessing. I can stay at home with the family, you know? Yep. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I joked. As soon as I heard the term social distance, I'm like, we've been doing that in trail building for years. We call that the circle of death. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, the interesting thing is that it did shut down a lot of trail uh, group activities in the beginning, but those did seem to kind of come back up and, and, and you know, get more stabilized as to, you know, just keep your distance. Here's your mask, sanitize your hands, all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was interesting to see some, you know, state parks and certain areas did shut down for a while. We joked that even, even fishermen were getting frustrated that boat landings were getting shut down. They're like, how much more socially distanced can we get when we're out on a boat in a river, you know, in a lake, Uh huh. you know, but then once, I think once June hit people are really cooler heads prevailed. I know like in Copper Harbor, Michigan, they had their best year ever this year because they had so many people coming up there, basically to social distance. I know I was, I was up there in August and when I drove into town and I go there a couple times a year, when I drove into town on a Wednesday, it looked like there was an event going on. There's mm-hmm. so many people up there and it's, you know, that's trail users, both hiking, biking, but also they have a pretty strong UTV crowd up there too. And, and it was just interesting to see how this whole thing. And so I, this year, especially more than any has really highlighted the need for trails and, and whatnot. So it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty awesome. Really. I mean- here in Colorado, every single little mountain town or front range little community shut down Main Street, put all their tables out. I mean, it looked like a festival every year here in Salida. I mean, we were, people were talking about losing their businesses in, you know, March and April. Uh, and they ended up with like 10 to 15% increases across the board in businesses in Salida. Real estate in Colorado is up 140%. Um, you know, our town is going off because not only are people from other states thinking they could go over here because now they know they can work remotely, but the whole front range of Colorado is now thinking, well, shit, why do I got to be in all this traffic when, you know, I could be two and a half hours away in BV or Salida or wherever, you know? So it's, it's been nuts for us. Um, yeah. I'd like to say it's like a festival every day of the week. Now it's a little bit chilled out, which is nice. Uh, but yeah, Literally, probably. Literally, literally chilled out with the temperatures dropping. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. Of course, ski season started, you know, so it's like, hmm, how long will that last before that shut down? Well, I don't have a whole lot else here for questions. I'd like, do you have anything in closing that you'd like to add before we uh, check this one out? Let's see. I mean, um, that's pretty much, I took some notes on your questions and, um, you know, I think probably a closing, you know, a closing thought for me is, is, you know, having been blessed with being in the industry for, oh, like 35 years, I guess. Um, 
and seeing the evolution and the rates of evolution within the outdoor adventure recreation industry and the pursuits within that, uh, as well as within the trail building industry and then the evolution of it. Um, I swear this last five years, I felt like I saw as much as I saw in 30 years. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is I feel like in this next three or four, five years max, I'm going to see again the evolution that I saw in the last 35 years, you know, yeah. which is mind blowing to me. Uh, because I can't imagine where, what it'll even look like at that point. You yeah. Know? So exciting, yeah, but scary. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot of things being learned in the trail industry right now. And it's, it's pretty awesome to watch it unfold, mm-hmm. you know? So cool. Well, Tony, I really appreciate everything. This is, this has been a good learning experience for me and this will be good for our listeners to listen to. I like to push this out to our local, uh, or, any anyone that'll listen from parks departments and whatnot too so to really get them educated on this type of stuff because it's super important as it, as recreation changes from you know the traditional sports to what we're doing you know in mm-hmm. parks department we're really starting to to take a take a hold and look at that and and really implement this type of stuff within their within their programs so yeah yeah what's football what's baseball never heard of them yeah <laughs> yeah yeah now football you have like if you i don't watch much football but from what i've been hearing apparently they pipe in like people cheering even though no one's in the stands (laughs) you know because if no one going to the games but they still make it sound like people are going to the games i guess oh my goodness yeah i wondered how people are like just dealing with all that and i don't know i haven't really ever been much of a part from that once i got into the whole outdoor adventure recreation thing Uh, But yeah, I think our industry is going to continue to just explode. Yeah. Well, and educational opportunities like what you're pushing at Trinidad Junior College and the stuff that the PTBA puts on and whatnot and and IMBA and other organizations, it's only going to grow, which is good because, you know, getting more people educated in this stuff is super important to make successful decisions and have success stories. Yeah. So cool. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Yep. Thank you, Tony. Thank you for listening to the Tony Boone interview. I am very appreciative that professionals like Tony will take the time to share the knowledge for us to absorb. Please share this content with others. Getting this message out will help us continue to create more shows. Please remember to leave a comment and rate the show wherever you consume your podcasts. If you have future ideas on communities or people to feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.